couple of weeks ago, we, we finished out chapter 4 and then we, we went through the first five verses of chapter, vi- chapter 5. And it introduced the concept of overcoming the world. In verse 1, John gave us um, two indicators of if a person had been born of God. One was that he believed that Jesus is the Son of God. And the second was that everyone who loves the Father and in turn loves his children or fellow Christians um, has been born of God. In verse 2, we were given a description of what is required in loving the children of God, uh, in being loving children of God, that we love God, that we keep His commandments. In verse 3, we got the biblical definition of our love for God, which again is keeping His commandments. And John also in that verse reminded us that His commandments are not burdensome. They're not put on us to, to make things difficult for us. They're put on us because of His love for us and His willingness for us to find fulfillment in Him. In verses 4 and 5, they reminded us that the victory that we have in Christ, that through Christ we uh, can overcome the world, that at the cross He defeated sin and death for us, which rendered Satan powerless so that we can achieve victory in our lives, but only through belief in Him and His Sonship with the Father, And so this morning we'll pick up with chapter 5. We're going to pick up with verse 6. And we're going to look at the witness that is given to us um, by the Son. We're going to look at how God has testified about Jesus and offered us life through the Son. And then we're going to close the book. Um, John closes the book by giving us an assurance of faith, um, telling us that we can be sure of who Christ is and what He does. So let's start with verses 6 through 9. And this is what they say. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. So, this section, and I would say um, what we will talk about uh, in the next section, are some of the, I find them to be a little bit more the difficult verses that that John has in this this letter. Um, And there's been instances of these being misinterpreted and used out of context. So this morning our goal is to to read these, to understand these, to carefully consider them and know exactly what are they saying, what do they mean, so that when we have these other teachings, when we hear misinterpreted um, teachings about this, that we can stand up to it or at least be confident in what we know um, the Bible says. So from verse 6, we see that one came, and the one who came was Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came by water and blood, but He did not come by water only, but with water and blood. So a central part of understanding this passage, you have to answer a couple of questions. Which coming of the Lord is referred to here? And what is meant by Him coming by water and blood. So 
the easy one is which coming is referred to. So there's little doubt, there's very little disagreement across all the, the uh, commentaries and things about the meaning of the coming that's talked about here. It's agreed that it's most likely a reference to his physical incarnation, him coming into the world, him being here living among man, Christ made manifest. So the harder one is what is meant by coming by water and by blood. And what I think this is in reference to, and I think it's correct and commentaries support it, is that the idea of the water is an allusion to his baptism. We can read about it in Matthew 3. If you flip to Matthew 3 and you read verse 15, we see the baptism of Christ. It says, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then that the blood is a reference to his death on the cross, his shedding of his blood on the cross. I think you can tie it into the entire work of the cross, not just his death, his sacrifice, but the burial, the resurrection at the cross too. If there was not a resurrection then the death would not have been as significant. The death of Christ is significant because there was a resurrection. Um, everybody dies. What was significant about his death is, number one, he freely gave it. He was innocent, and yet he sacrificed himself for our sins. But what really makes the death important is his resurrection, the fact that he was risen from the dead, that he was the firstborn, um, and that... Because of that death, burial, resurrection, we have access to the Father. So the first witness being at the beginning of his public ministry, the water. If you remember, that's when he starts his public ministry. And the second, at the close of his earthly public ministry. Um, we know he was around for a certain amount of time after the resurrection. But everything that he was here to teach culminated at the cross. And after the cross... His work was, was complete. He had done everything. He had defeated sin. He had defeated death. He had saved mankind. Salvation was available. The gospel of Christ was complete at that point. So the two things that are witnessed to him was his baptism and his death. And that's what he's referencing here. At his baptism, Jesus publicly received acknowledgement from heaven as the Son of God and formally began his ministry. And then at the cross... He announced, it is finished. And that's in John 19.30. So John tells us in verses 6, 7, and 8 that the Spirit testifies and that the Spirit is truth. And the Spirit referred to in these, these verses is the Holy Spirit because there was not just the, the, the witness of His baptism and confirmation from heaven that this is Christ, the Son of God, but there was the confirmation and witness of his death, but there was a third witness to it as well, which was the Spirit. And we know, we just read it a minute ago um, in Matthew 3, that the Spirit bore witness to Jesus at the baptism of Christ. And then look what John says in John 1. If you flip to John 1, we see again how the Spirit confirms Christ is 
who He is. John 1, it's verses 32 and following, 32 through 34. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John is witness to this, this Spirit testifying to who Christ is. And then we find that there's three things bearing witness to the deity of Christ. And their testimony all point to the same end, that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is the Savior of the world, that He is the forgiveness of our sins, that He is God manifested on earth. Um, John closes this section with a logical argument that reasons from the less to the greater. He says that if we accept the testimony of men, then we should more readily access, accept the testimony of God because He is greater than man. And since He, God, has testified that Jesus is His Son, then we ought to believe. He's saying that if men have said that Christ is who He is and we believe them, then we have no reason not to believe God who has testified both at His at His baptism, at the cross, and then through His Spirit that Christ is who He is. So then he jumps into verses 10 through 12 and he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Verse 10 can literally be translated, He that keeps on believing in the Son continues to have the witness in Him. We saw earlier that the Holy Spirit is witness to the person of Christ, and we know that all who believe in Christ as Son of God have the Spirit abiding in them. Um, if you flip to Acts 5 is a passage that talks about that. I think it's good to prove this because there, there are folks that, that deny that the Spirit is within us, and it's true. Um, if we have Christ, if we are within Christ, we have the Spirit within us. If you read Acts 5.32, it says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. You flip to Romans, just a, a book over. You go to Romans chapter 8. And we see in 9 through 11, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then in Galatians, um, you flip to Galatians 4, and we see again that the Spirit is dwelling in us. Galatians 4 
And verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And we know that in, in Acts 2.38, it says that um, when we are baptized, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how all that works. I don't know that it's necessary that we have to understand how that works. But God promises us that the Spirit, when we are Christians, when we take on Christ in the, in the watery grave of baptism, when we are saved by Him, God gives us the gift of the Spirit. And it's within us and it testifies to us and through us of who Christ is and who God is. And we know that the Spirit doesn't speak to us in a miraculous way. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God. And there's a lot of it that we don't understand. And, and it's just, I don't know that you have to understand it. But we know that the Spirit does abide in us. The Word of God in which the Spirit works is the basis of our faith. That faith supplies us with confidence that the witness is true. And if we are faithful, the witness is always with us. So to reject the deity of Christ is to reject Him as God's Son. And what John tells us in these passages is that if we reject Christ, we're making God a liar because God has borne witness to us to who Christ is through the water, through the blood, and through the Spirit. And to deny the deity of Christ, to deny that Christ is the Messiah, that He is God made manifest to man who was here and died, buried, and resurrected, if we deny that, then we're making God out to be a liar. And that is not a good thing. Um, we do not ever want to be accused of calling God a liar. Have you ever been called a liar in your own life? Have you ever had someone come to you and say, Hey man, I, I don't believe you. I don't trust your word. It hurts us as humans when people call us liars. To call God the definition of good and love and power and majesty and purity and holiness, a liar, that's something I don't want to be involved with, and I doubt you do. And we know that when we call God a liar, that we are separating ourselves from Him. So to reject the deity of Christ is to reject Him as God's Son. We're making God a liar. And God's testified through water, blood, and spirit about the deity of Son. And if we deny that fact, we're challenging God. And not only is that unbelief, but it's really an insult to God. Um, God gave us testimony concerning eternal life through His Son, and that testimony is abundant. But if we don't believe that God who is, Christ is who He says He is, then we, we miss out on this abundance that we have in life. John 10.10 10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 14.6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except, for th except through me. And then John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John tells us that if we have the Son... We have life. And then he also tells us the opposite of that. If we do not have the Son, we don't have life. So we see that life here being examined is conditional. In order to have it, we must have the Son. We must be in faithful obedience to Him and devotion to Him. 
and we have to believe in Him as the Son of God. Eternal life is a promise to the Christian who is faithful to God, obeying Him and honoring Christ as His Son. Everyone has access to eternal life. The gift of eternal life is for everyone. Christ died for every single person, good, bad, ugly, mean, kind, everyone that's ever lived. Christ died for that individual. And everyone has access to the eternal life. But, and it, it, there, there's always this condition, in order to partake in that eternal life, we have to be faithfully obedient to God, obeying Him and honoring Him, honoring Christ as His Son. And we'll see as we get farther into this book that this is something He starts to talk about. Um, if we have life through the Son, then without Him we are without the promise of eternal life. So if eternal life, fulfillment, salvation is found through Christ a lack of belief, a lack of obedience, a lack of commitment to Him leads to death. You lose that gift of eternal life. You lose that gift of salvation and freedom from sin. He then jumps into verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. So John begins this section of Scripture, again, giving us an understanding of why he's written this epistle. From the beginning, we've said that he's writing this as an assurance to the early Christians who were standing up against false teaching and false doctrine, and he's reassuring them of who Christ is, of what Christ has provided, of what Christ has done, and the importance of remaining in Christ. And again, he is here reassuring them that Christ is who He says He is, and that is where their eternal life will come from. And He reminds them that the key to eternal life is belief in Christ and the Son of God. And of course, we've seen throughout this book, and we know throughout the, the Word of God, that it's not just a, a belief that involves knowledge. It's not just acknowledging that Christ is the Son of God, but it's deeper than that. It's an active belief. It leads to obedience to Christ and His commandments. So he then tells them about the confidence that they can possess before God because of the assurance of their faith. Since we have the promise of eternal life, we can have confidence and assurance as we approach God in prayer. Remember what he said back in 1 John 3. Um, it's in 1 John 3 when he was talking about prayer. and In verses 21 through 23, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive for Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Um, we have this ability to approach the throne of God by having faith in Him. But John gives us a condition on which we must approach God in prayer if we are to be confident. So he says, because of our belief in who Christ is, because we acknowledge that He is the Son of God, that He is God made manifest to man, that He is the, the Savior of all of us, of Christians, that He is the Messiah, 
then we have confidence to approach God in prayer. But, he says, he gives us the disclaimer in this book, that if we ask according to His will. So God's will is put forth in the Word, and to ask according to His will is to ask according to what He has taught in Scriptures. And Jesus understood this. You know, in Matthew 26, when He's praying, He prayed, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. And if Christ is praying to the will of God, bending His will to the will of God, acknowledging the all-power of God, then we need to do the same thing. And if we do not ask according to His will, we cannot approach the throne with prayer, the throne of prayer confidently. For He hears us if we ask according to His will. Matthew, in Matthew 7, um, 7 through 11, Christ tells us to ask God and it will be answered. Um, John reminds us that we have to ask according to the will of God. The assurance we have that God answers the prayers of the faithful encourages us to ask God, enables us to know that God hears our prayers and answers them. We know that if God hears them and He answers them, we may not know immediately the answer, but we know and have faith that God hears them and answers them. And we've taught a class in here before on prayer, and God doesn't always answer the prayer like we think He should. Um, but we're promised that if we pray according to His will, if we are faithful, if we are pure before Him, then He hears our prayers and answers them. So then we jump into verses 16 through 17. And again, this is one of those passages that I think is a little bit difficult to, to read on the surface. It, I think it's taken out of context uh, quite often. But I think it's one that we need to discuss, and I think if we break it down, it makes a lot of sense. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So on the heels of telling us that because of our faith, because of our confidence in who Christ is, that we can approach His throne with confidence in prayer, praying according to the will of God. He comes in and He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and pray for that one. But then He goes and He talks about if someone sees a, a sin that does lead to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. So we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is he talking about here? What, what is the sin that, that leads to death? What are the sins that do not lead to death? Um, why should we not pray for that individual? Um, why does he say that you ought not pray for that individual? Um, and so I think it's a difficult passage, and I think it's one that we need to understand because part of our life as Christians being in the family of God, being brothers and sisters with one another, loving God and being taught to love one another, we need to understand what are we talking about here because our duty is to look out for our brothers and sisters. 
That, that's one of our main duties as Christians. That's why we fellowship with each other, is to build accountability and um, togetherness. So we need to understand what he's talking about here. So the connection of these verses and the ones immediately before them is close and it, and it should be determined before we jump into these verses. So we have boldness and confidence before the Father in prayer, knowing that if we ask, He hears us, and if He hears us, He will answer us. If we have a brother who is sinning and committing sin that does not lead to death, we are encouraged to pray for him so that he may have life. And, and not that our prayer will lead to his salvation or forgiveness, because that is a very individual thing. Until someone submits their own will to God and submits in obedience to what he teaches, they're not going to find salvation. They're not going to find forgiveness. But our prayer is that they find it, that they are, that they are I guess, made guilty in their sin, they need repentance. They're searching for repentance. Um, for only through repentance and confession of sin will the sinner be justified. So, you know, there's these ideas in some religions that you can pray for someone else's sin and that, boof, they're forgiven. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about that if we see a brother in sin, that we're praying for them, that we are praying that they turn from their sin, that they turn back to God, that they repent, that they confess, that they find forgiveness in the blood of Christ, and not that just magically they find forgiveness of their sins. And part of that active prayer life is, and this is just a Jason thought about it, and I didn't read this in a commentary, but I think part of this active prayer life is that we don't just go home in the quiet of our own environment and pray for the brother, dear Lord, help this, this brother find a way out of their sin. But as brothers who love one another, that we're actually actively going and helping these people, that we're holding them accountable. Because to see someone in sin and to not do anything about it is not showing love. Um, we love our children when we see them do something really dumb and dangerous and inappropriate. We get on to them. We say something to them. We correct them. We hold them accountable. Not for any reason other than we love them and we want to see the best in them. And, and when we as brothers and sisters in Christ, and y'all, we spend a lot of time with one another. I feel like last week I saw all of y'all at least every day. We spend tons of time with each other. We say we love one another. We say that we have uh, a relationship with one another, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, if that's true, then when we see someone in sin, when we see someone struggling, we don't just go to our closet and pray, Dear Lord, be with them, help them, let them come back to you. We do that. But while we're doing that, we actively are engaging them and saying, what's going on? I see you doing this. Let me help you through it. That's part of the Christian love that we've talked about all throughout 1 John. That is the type of love that Christ demands of us, that God demands of us, that we love God and that we love one another. And if we truly love one another, we're not going to sit back and let our brothers continue in sin. We're going to pray for them and we're going to actively... In, um, work to hold them accountable. So an analysis of the passage, back to the notes, um, is that a child of God can sin 
There is a sin that's not leading to death. And we are instructed to pray for those who are sinning. And then we find out that there is a sin that leads to death. And for those, it is useless or futile to pray for them. So what is the sin? The passage doesn't point out a single sin, but it talks about sin in general. Um, and the sin was such that a brother or sister in Christ could discern it. Because if you look at the very beginning of this passage, um, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So it means that this is people that are fellowshipping with each other and they're able to see what's going on. So we know that this passage is not necessarily an individual sin, but it's something that is seen. The death referred to here is not a physical death, but spiritual death, the separation from God and all that is good. And it was a sin that the children of God would take a part in. So the idea of the sin that does not lead to death is it's not a specific thing. It's a general sin, and we all sin. The Bible tells us that, and we can't deny that. If we deny that we sin, then we again call God a liar. We don't want to be on that side of the, the coin. But the death referred to is a spiritual death, and it's something that all of us involve ourselves with. And, and your sins, your weaknesses are different than my sins and weaknesses, and we all have them. And if you're honest with yourself... You can sit down and probably take out a notebook and write down your top five things you struggle with. And if we compared those, we'd all have different top five things because we're different people. We all have different passions. We all have different things in our heart that we're tempted by. Um, but there is that type of sin. We do sin. There is a sin that doesn't lead to death. And this sin is something that we take part in. And we know that in this letter... We've studied it already that there's extensive information about forgiveness of sin that's available to us. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, um, we were told that sin is present in the lives of all. In chapter 3, verse 8, we found out that the origin of sin is the devil. In chapter 3, verse 9, we found out that sin may be avoided by being born of God, having God's Word abide in our hearts. In chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that we have an advocate before the Father to help us when we sin. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, we have the promise that if we confess our sins, He will forgive them. So we've already talked a lot throughout this book about sin. So sin is an important thing. It's important for us to understand that we're going to mess up, that there is forgiveness there. But we need to be looking and actively praying for one another and actively involving ourselves in one another's lives. John tells us that the Lord will forgive every sin a brother confesses in chapter 1, verse 8. But then in verse 16 of chapter 5, he tells us um, that there is a sin that the Lord will not forgive. So therefore we can learn the type of sin the Lord will not forgive is simply a sin because we've been told all the things that... that that allow us forgiveness of sin. So the, the sin that is not forgiven is the one that is not confessed. It's the one that's not repented of. It's the one that's not acknowledged. So there's not some magic sin out there that poof you do and your hope for eternal salvation is gone. But there is a pride, a lack of turning your will to God an unwillingness 
to humble yourself before the throne of God, an unwillingness to confess your sin, an unwillingness to acknowledge forgiveness, to acknowledge that Christ can take away your forgiveness. And it, I think it all comes from pride. Um, I think it's, we think our will is better than anyone else's will and we're going to get away with whatever we want. But that's the sin that he's talking about that, is, that, that will not have forgiveness. Therefore, we can learn that the type of sin the Lord will not forgive is simply a sin, any sin in which the brother will not confess. So if we see a brother in sin, we should pray for him that he will manifest penitence, and this is our duty. It's also our duty if we see a brother in sin to confront them, to talk to them, to try to bring them back to Christ, to teach them the way. But there's some people that don't respond to that. We all know people in our lives that know the truth, that live in sin outside of the truth, and just refuse to confess and repent and bend their will to God. Every one of us in this room knows somebody in our life that's in that situation. And what it's saying is if we see a brother in sin who is not penitent and continues in rebellion from God, that it's... You hate to say it's useless, but it's useless to petition the Father on His behalf. Now, I think it's important to say it's not forbidden to pray for Him. He doesn't say you can't pray for these people. But His heart is hardened. There's a lack of repentance. There's a lack of confession. And it makes it impossible for Him to be restored to God until that person is pricked in the heart with guilt, with being lost, and they search and want to return to the Father. And sadly for so many people, it's like the prodigal son. It's when they're all alone, covered in the slop of the world, lost, scared, cold, hungry, physically, spiritually, and they realize, I have got nothing. And that's when they turn back to God. So... We can't pray that there, you know, the, the idea in this passage is if anyone, um, uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin and does not lead to death. You can pray for these folks, but I don't know that praying that they are forgiven is a wise use of your time. Because until those people are convicted in their own hearts and turn to God, they're not going to find forgiveness. That, that, that's, you don't have the power in your prayer to pray enough for them that they are forgiven without turning their own will to God. What you can have in your prayer, though, is the power to turn yourself to help convict them. You pray, help me be someone that can help this person see the light. I think it's okay to pray, let this person hit rock bottom so that they can see the light. Because sometimes until we hit rock bottom, we have no opportunity to find forgiveness. Until we bottom out like the prodigal son and realize I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm without control, I'm starved. Only in those moments are we truly going to respond to God when we have this hardened heart. So it's very, impo it's very difficult for someone who is unwilling 
through their pride, through their selfishness, through their own ideas of how great they are. It's very difficult for people that will not ask for forgiveness, that will not confess, that will not return to find salvation. And John is saying, you know, maybe save your prayers on those or pray differently. Don't pray for their forgiveness because they're not going to find it through your prayer. In verse 17, John defines sin as all unrighteousness. So again, all sin is unrighteousness. All sin separates us from the Father. The white lies are just as sinful as the murder. Where we lose our ability to be restored to the Father is when we lose our ability to confess who Christ is, that we are broken, that we are sinners, and that we need Him and be repentant towards Him. God's commands are righteous. Anything that works against them or breaks them is unrighteousness. And sin consists of doing which, that which is wrong and neglecting to do what is right. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Unrighteousness is a condition opposed to righteousness. So sin is serious. Sin is real. And there is sin that does not lead to forgiveness. But that sin is more so the pride and the hardening of the heart than it is anything because all sin is wrong. In verses 18 through 21, as we close out this chapter, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John closes his letter with three of the last four verses, beginning with the term, we know. So he's kind of summing up what he has said throughout this book, and he's saying, We've written you this. You know this. Um, he's, he's indicating understanding and confidence in the reader. He first tells us that we know that if we are born of God, we keep from sinning continuously, that Christ, the one born of God, protects us and has overcome the evil one. Um, if you go back to 1 John 3 and read 8 and 9, says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we know that if Christ is in our hearts, that we keep from sinning, that Christ being the advocate for us before the Father protects us, that we have protection through the blood of Christ. And he has beaten the devil. He's overcome sin. He then tells us that we know that we are from God and the world is from the evil one. Being begotten of God, we are his offspring. Um, you can read 1 John 4, 4 through 6. It talks about that. But the world is reference to those who are opposed to God, who have given themselves over to a life of sin, and they are of the evil one. We are to live separate and apart from the world because we are of God. Read with me Romans, flip to Romans, and read what he says in Romans 12. Um, 
1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we're supposed to live in the world, but we're not supposed to be conformed to the world. We're supposed to, through Christ, transform our minds, knowing who Christ is, what Christ is, who God is, what God is, and living for that. Um, in verse 20, John tells us that we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding in life. Through Christ's manifestation to us, we have come to know and understand Him and begin a relationship with God. To know, to have an understanding of the true God and to be in His Son, Jesus Christ, is to have an assurance of eternal life. Again, John is writing this letter to give us assurance of our eternal life. It's throughout this whole letter. And the assurance comes from being in Christ, being obedient to Christ, being obedient to God, acknowledging that Christ is God's Son, that Christ is the source of our salvation. If we can do those things, we can have confidence before the, the throne of God as we come to judgment because that is how we're assured of our, our sonship to God. Um, these words echo what Christ prayed in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so at the close of this letter, John is reemphasizing that which he began the letter with, the eternal life of God being made manifest to us through Christ Jesus and us having confidence, knowing, having assurance before Him that if we are faithful to the Son of God, if we are faithful to God, that if we have... Um, the love of God and the love of our brothers in our hearts, then we can be assured of our eternal destination. We can be assured that God will give us what He's promised us. And then he wraps up with this little phrase at the end, little children, keep yourselves from idols. At this time, idols, just like today, were still a problem. They weren't necessarily graven images, but they were anything that supplanted God, that anything that took His place, that worship and time and effort was given to that took away from God. And just like today, He was warning them as He closed this to, to avoid such things. Um, and then He closes the book. And um, we had two more lessons on John 2 and John 3. Actually, I think it was just one where we combined them, but read those on your own. They're very similar to what we studied here. They take six, seven minutes to read. They're very, very short. But thank you for your time this quarter. I hope it's been beneficial for you. I know studying through First John has always beneficial for me. But thank you all.